0: Welcome to the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Angela Decker. In her latest novel, Sex, Lies, and Sensibility, author Nikki Payne takes the Jane Austen classic Sense and Sensibility and offers a modern retelling, set in rural Maine with black and indigenous characters in the primary roles. What we get is a big-hearted and spicy romance that spotlights people of color and explores some pretty deep social issues like land use, sexual politics, and class conflict. When she isn't writing, Payne, who has a background in cultural anthropology, is a tech anthropologist exploring ways to deliver better digital services. She's also a member of Smut University, a premium feminist writing collective. Welcome to the Jefferson Exchange, Nikki Payne.
1: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having
0: me. Thank you. Why why an Austin retelling? What is it about her work that, that you connect with?
1: Austin in particular, I'm a cultural anthropologist, as you mentioned, and I feel like there is this really fun way that Austin was always kind of looking askance at her society, mm-hmm. and because she was a woman, because she was writing essentially the marriage plot, she could talk about the ridiculousness of the social structures that her her women heroines found themselves under, without imbuing any you know. <laughs> um, Without, without getting any um, kind of flack from the community. So I feel like she was able to be a really canny social observer. And um, with, with everyone saying, oh, well, she's writing these types of novels. It's fine. It's fine. We can read this. It's like that jester, right, who can mm-hmm. tell the truth to the king without getting his head lopped off. Right. Um, she right. was able to talk about women in their place in society.
0: No, I love that. And it is, it's kind of in the guise of being funny, but like so many important truths come out in humor and satire. And yeah, and she does do that very, very beautifully, as do you. Um, This is your second Jane Austen retelling, right? It
1: is. It is.
0: Okay. What was your first book? My first book was Pride and Protest.
1: Mm. That was based in D.C. Mm. And it was an absolute riot. (laughs) It was wild.
0: Okay. So Pride and Protest. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Your novels, they center black and brown characters. And I'd love for you to talk about representation. I remember reading novels as a kid and wondering why none of them, you know, none of the main characters look like me. Like, oh, look at that. She's so pale and blonde and blah, blah, blah. So (laughs) I just, I want you to talk a little bit about representation in romance novels and and your goals in making a space for diverse characters?
1: Um, I I love this question because I cut my teeth reading romance novels way too early, right? (laughs) Just peeking into, like, my aunties and mothers' um, Mm -hmm. romance novels. And everyone had, you know, flaming locks of auburn hair. It would look like Jolene, right, (laughs) from from that (laughs) Dolly Parton song. And it was just—it was so— so when you're imagining like who deserves love, who is worthy of fighting for, who is handsome and who is beautiful, it, as much as you think it doesn't, it really imprints on you um, what beauty is and what, what desirability is and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And as much as you feel like you're distanced from it or you're just reading a fantasy, that, that does psychological work to read the hero and the heroine and the person so worthy of all this fight and this love as constantly not looking like or sounding like or being like you in any way. And so one of the things that I love about retelling Austin is that I read a lot of Regency when I was young. And one of the things I love about retelling um Austin with people of color in it is that it it forces you to see these like archetypically desirable characters, like a brooding Mr. Dorsey <clears throat> as an Asian man, right? Yeah or uh, a duty-bound Edward Ferrars as a Native American hero, and two black sisters as the richest to rags women who have to move themselves to another place and still find love. Like, what does it mean to put these these bodies in those stories? What has to change and what has to stay the same?
0: No, I love that. And I I love the idea of just, you know, making people that, other people of color can see, like, oh, okay, uh, somebody who looks like me is is worthy of of love and all of this, you know, all the romance and the passion, and and also just kind of feeling seen as a reader. Yeah. Like, oh, wow, look, somebody wrote somebody wrote this with you know with me in mind, and so yeah. I really really appreciate that.
1: And one and- of the things I'm most proud of is the, in Pride and Protest when Lisa is trying to decide what to wear, mm-hmm. she's like also flipping through like ponytails and like styles of weave, you know, just like, <laughs> right. what shall I wear today? And this, just this moment of like, this is also how people get ready. It's like deciding what hair they're wearing, you know, like exactly. that is, um, that's a part of getting ready also. It's just like those tiny moments of, of being seen.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um And while I know it's not true that black women don't read Jane Austen, I know, Loads of black women who read Jane Austen. I was wondering because one time I went with a friend um, and an elderly white man to a Jane Austen society meeting. and oh, this was in California. Girl. <laughs> Sis, right, say less. right. I know where you're going. <laughs> so, has there been a response from that kind of, you know, from the Jane Austen society type community?
1: Oh. Okay, the the way you say the Jane Austen society type communities mm-hmm. because I know precisely what you are talking about. Like there is a contingency of like of, of what people call traditionalists. Mm-hmm. That a friend of mine, Bianca Hernandez, um, she likes to call them Lady Karen de Bergs, right? <laughs> and what is so like fantastic about like understanding what these. Um, What Jane Austen traditionalists are really saying, right, is that um, when they talk about nostalgia, when they're reading Jane Austen, they're reading for this nostalgic world where the social order um, had them at the top. Right. Mm -hmm. And So they're reading in this nostalgic way to try to regain or, or reattach themselves to this perfect time where society looked in a way that was comfortable for them. Um, And so I I feel like oftentimes that chafing against like that kind of hashtag, not my aerial, right? (laughs) All of those movements about how how people in majority societies want to remember the past and how they want to feel nostalgic and good Mm -hmm. about the past. There are certain bodies like a black body, right? right, that automatically like troubles your sense of, of whether the past was good and perfect or not, mm-hmm. like if you can really think about the good old days when people are talking about them, even here in America, right? There's a there's a, a little taste of segregationism in those, you know, in those those good old days. And so when when those traditionalists, those like let's just keep our Jane Austen the way she um, meant it, are really what they're really fighting for, right? Mm-hmm. Is an ordered world, a world with the order that feels comfortable to them. And look, I mean, everyone has their, their thing they have to hold on to. It's just slippery sand. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they just don't understand it yet. Um, one of these days I'm going to be um, imbuing against, you know, <laughs> people changing my um, Jane Austen in some way. Maybe there go I, but for the Lord. But for right now, uh, I can't see myself on that side of only wanting to see Something in another way. I'm a child of I'm a child of hip hop, right? Mm. And the entire the entire genre is based on you know reframing, remixing, challenging um, what's already been there and making something new and, and amazing.
0: Yes, yes. You're listening to Jefferson Public Radio. I'm Angela Decker. I'm speaking with author Nikki Payne about her latest novel, Sex, Lies, and Sensibility. And talking about that, the remixing goes back to what you were saying about in your first book with with somebody you know shopping for weaves talk about the process of of blackifying or modernizing these characters like that had to have been a whole process
1: oh yes no absolutely some of the things that i thought about when i think of like bringing color into these characters is some of the major differences um between like a white character and a black character it's not like these people have different concerns and they're just on these different universes and marrying the between shall meet, etc. Like mm. that's, it's actually not the right way to think about making a character, a different um, uh, race. For me, it was, it was that um, this woman is a black woman. She's automatically going to be walking in the world with a certain amount of, of friction. She's automatically going to be pushing against some sandpaper edges as she walks um, through her life in a way that a white woman like simply wouldn't, and so when you think about when you think about two people going into the store mm-hmm. and one being uh, followed or one not being serviced as quickly as the other, it seems like a simple slight. But one is a story of a of a, a black woman going into a place and having a se- separate type of experience. So in the first book, when Lisa is meeting Dorsey, mm-hmm. and she expected a um, a white villain, and she sees this um, Asian man. She doesn't know how to place him. She pl- she places him in her own society, and then begins to tell him, you know, all of all of her plans. This is a terrible idea, but it was because she was making these assumptions about who who the villains and who the good people are, right? And so when, when I think about like making a, changing a character, I think first about the the way they go through the world and how much friction they encounter. And oftentimes there are subjectivities like a white woman or a white man who just encounter less friction moving about their life. They want to open up a cupcake shop or bakery in Des Moines. They just do it. And that's the story. And it's fine if that's the story, but for some Characters they have to go through rigorous uh credit checks or maybe they'll mm-hmm. they can't go to a bank they have to get their shady cousin <laughs> get them a loan, and then they're in trouble right so like there are all of these small ways to turn those stories into stories that sound and look like us another thing i'm sorry i don't mean to go over it too long but another okay. thing is like the family structure mm-hmm. i also wanted to toy with i grew up in a um, largely kind of with my aunties and my grandmother. And my grandmother made a lot of decisions. And um, that's not to say that there weren't like a ton of men around. There were men around, but they weren't like the decision makers. They were kind of a little bit in and out. And uh, I had this, this kind of matriarchal structure that I also wanted to honor that I had seen a lot growing up as well. So I wanted to think about how family structure changes, how the friction in your life Um, that you kind of have going through the world changes and your POV. Something happens to you and you think, oh, this is because this is because of um, the way I look or this is because of the way I present myself in a way that perhaps um, a white woman in that scenario wouldn't automatically jump to.
0: You also going back to like assumptions that that people make and kind of moving moving through the world. In, in whatever body we have, um, that happens in, in Sex, Lies, and Sensibility as well in the beginning mm-hmm. when, when the main characters first meet. And I realize we haven't really talked about it. I wonder if you could give us a, a quick overview about the story.
1: Absolutely. So um, two sisters really find out at the worst possible time that they are their father's outside children. And they are swiftly disinherited, and the only thing in their name is a dilapidated property in Maine in foreclosure. And they can make the money to get the house out of foreclosure. Um, They just have to stay focused. It shouldn't be a problem, right? (laughs) But um, as soon as they get there, there is a tall, dark, and secretive indigenous tour guide, and he has staked a claim on that same property. And... Have to work together to come to some sort of understanding. But as long as they don't get distracted, it should be fine. But
0: you know, not the way the world works. Um, and that was something else. Just sort of you—you you have indigenous characters as modern and yeah. present and working and doing business. Can you speak to that? Because that really means a lot to have these very modern, active. Characters right. who are just living their lives.
1: Now, that was so important to me. I um, did a lot of research. I traveled to Maine. I spoke with with scholars. I spoke with artists. I spoke with community members, like about their community. And one of the the things that kept coming out, like over and over, is that everyone speaks about Native folk and Native communities, like almost in memorial, right? Like mm-hmm. almost as if like they're not there when broad issues like tribal sovereignty. Like, broken promises from the government are not just something that happened 300, 400 years ago, right? And so, like, there is, like, an active sense of um, erasure by throwing something in the past, right? The same thing that when people say slavery was so long ago, right? It's a kind of erasure Mm -hmm. of what's happening now and presently. And that's the same thing happening to Native communities by saying, hey, these promises – yes they were promises but this was all so long ago when in fact native folk are still here right now today fighting for tribal sovereignty fighting for their rights and being visible um but somehow always thrown into this sense of of a nostalgic america that doesn't exist anymore
0: Okay, Nikki, we're going to pause just briefly for a break, and then we will be back with more of our conversation with Nikki Payne, author of Sex, Lies, and Sensibility. Welcome to the Jefferson Exchange as we continue our conversation with romance novelist Nikki Payne about representation in romance and her latest book, *Sex, Lies and Sensibility*, a retelling of the Jane Austen classic *Sense and Sensibility* with Black and Indigenous characters. For this book, you you went to Maine and you researched Maine and you researched tribal history in Maine. I did. Maine. Um, I did. I'm constantly struck by what I never learned about people of color in American history. Always. So, when you were researching this book, did did anything come up that surprised you?
1: Oh, um absolutely. I was I was actually surprised by some some statistics about like um police brutality of like Native Americans and Native communities. What I think about George Floyd and like kind of the the relationship people of color have to the cops for some reason, um, because of our, my my own biases, I'd never thought about that relationship with um, Native Americans. And then seeing the stats, seeing the data that they are the 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 highest ethnic group actually to have um, altercations with and deadly and fatal altercations with the police um, in the United States, and it made you made made me kind of realize, wow, this isn't this isn't strictly um, a black issue when we talk about, like, kind of the the over, um, over-policing of certain communities, right? And so, like, that was one of the stats that really stuck with me about how we can be really insular about what we imagine a, a problem or an issue is. And if we were to step out and say, whoa, this isn't, like, over-policing of particular communities. Let's look at the types of communities that are over and What can we what can we say about all of these types of communities? So, like, building those bridges and building those connections well, became really, really interesting and compelling to me.
0: It's kind of like just what you were saying earlier about Jane Austen, just sort of a book like this, a romance. It, it's a really good vehicle for opening up a serious conversation.
1: It is. It actually surprisingly is. Like, people think that, like, oh, you know, romance is fluff, it's its a fun time, but it's actually a fantastic vehicle for two people coming from wildly different subjectivities to have to relate to each other in a very intimate way. And how do you do that? You do that by being vulnerable, by asking questions that will put you in a vulnerable position, by allowing yourself to say, this is what I don't know, this is what I don't understand.
0: Going back to what we were talking about, about romance, um, being able to open up a serious conversation I mean, do you have any expectations about the conversations that that you want readers to have you know given you know our current historical moment like is there something that you're hoping that blossoms into a, a larger conversation
1: um I do I think there there are a few conversations that happen in this novel that will make people, kind of perhaps agree and disagree. There's some issues that I kind of left open-ended about one's desire to to um, live on a reservation or leave a reservation. The example that one of my characters uses is like Jay-Z talking about the Marcy Projects. Is, is, are the Marcy Projects ideal or are they a perfect springboard for the American dream? Do you talk about getting out of it, right? And so like, do we honor where we're from but also desire to leave and do better. And that tension is there in the Native community as well as the Black community of like, don't forget where you came from, but also strive to do better. And that, that, that tension is real when, two, when you encounter two people who have taken um, different paths mm-hmm. and you see where they go. And so like one of those broader conversations that I think um, could bubble up out of this is like, um, is, is there a right answer to this, right? And and also just these questions of of, of shame, right? And that just in that deep kind of Brene Brown aspect of it. Like how much does does shame or your own sense of what you feel like you deserve keep you from from going for that job, or applying for that thing or asking for that number? How much are you in your head about what you actually deserve? Um, that you've um sabotage what your little chance at happiness for your own sense of of
0: shame. No, exactly. There was a there's a a part in the book that's it's just heartbreaking. Well, throughout the book, where where Nora, the main character, is kind of paralyzed at times because yeah. because of a, a scandal that sort of followed her at, right. from a young age. And yeah. there is that too with our just social media, the internet. It's so hard to escape a mistake. And so hard. I really did love the way, you know, she kind of grows throughout the book and and just as a couple they kind of work with that. And it's And when you think about the
1: those larger connections with um with Jane Austen again, like sense and sensibility in and of itself is it's about gossip. It's about reputation. Right? And it's it's very much Jane Austen was was always thinking about what happens, are the perils what happens when your reputation is out of your control. And and when you think about a character uh, where, like Nora, whose reputation is in tatters, Mm -hmm. and um, she's so concerned with how other people in the world see her and how she sees herself that she closes herself off to potential love.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Um, Changing the topic just a little bit, as a professional I, I did carefully read the sex scenes yes, um professionally is it <laughs> is it hard to write sex scenes that that strike a balance between romantic and spicy and and I mean I've read romance novels I've read sex scenes that sound physi- yep. physically impossible or <laughs> or medical or weird <laughs> Medical, yeah <laughs> So talk a little bit about just sort of that process.
1: I I love writing sex scenes because I feel like they are these interesting and really compelling extensions of characterization. Mm-hmm. And romance is like one of those few genres where you still get to see characterization in the most intimate of places. And like, a lot of authors can take their characterization all the way out to, like, the nth universe, but, so like, seeing how someone gives and receives pleasure mm-hmm. is still such oh, it's still such an, uh compelling part of their humanity. Mm-hmm. It's such a compelling part of um, how they see the world, and so even when you think of writing an intimate scene, you're never like, you're never thinking, like, okay, um, let me just um, add a a sex scene here for me i'm thinking what are the what are the things um that this character will um like to do to give this other person pleasure like how have they proved that they love each other and sometimes the sex scene will actually let you know that these two people aren't aren't ready for a big commitment Mm -hmm. by being maybe hot but not intimate Right. Where it's a one night stand and then they have to hang out the next day and it's awkward. Right. Or the, the it's such a great vehicle for characterization because you get to see these people at their core. Are they greedy? Are they mean? Are they giving? Are they generous? Are they kind um, at their fundamental core? Um, who are they? And sometimes you can see in those in those moments where the lizard brain is activated, you get to see who that person um, really is.
0: No, no, that's 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 a wonderful way to describe it. Just sort of moves the romance in this story. It just kind of you know kind of solidified that that love like you could see mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah in terms of the future of romance novels, like do you expect to see just in general more kind of more romance stories that are centering people of color? Um, I don't
1: know. I, I feel like there are some competing. Um, issues right there's the uh the revolution of tiktok right mm. that has turned romance into just a kind of fast fashion you know <laughs> revolving door people want to read their um, books really quickly and move forward um i also feel like there's a generation of tiktokers that are young and um are sometimes i um, not like deeply engaging with Tech. So some of the books that become very, very popular on TikTok are fast, quick, really steamy um, reads that are like that are not necessarily low engagement, but um, that don't kind of tax and question. And then like kind of as you get deeper into the algorithm, so I would say that the first time you go on TikTok and you say give me a book, mm-hmm. they're going to give you a very specific type of book, and they're going to feed you that book for a few uh, months. And then as you get deeper into your niche, you'll get some of the best, deepest, most compelling recommendations, but it takes time. It takes time because otherwise what's on top of the algorithm, essentially Mm -hmm. are these very fast turnover, oftentimes non-diverse books, non like high heat, low friction Mm -hmm. books where um, they're very, very digestible. And that's what you're going to find the kind of on the layer cake of, um, of TikTok. So I, and I think when those books break out, they're so huge, they're hard to ignore. Mm-hmm. And and so oftentimes you'll find people looking for more of those, and it can proliferate pretty wildly, pretty quickly, um, so that certain types of books are given precedence. Um, we're seeing a kind of reverse, not reversion, what's the word, like a retraction almost of some of those promises of 2020, right, where everyone was saying they're going to um, – get get more diverse authors and tell more diverse stories. And some of those authors that were picked up in 2020 are now kind of slowly being left out to pasture. So I think we're seeing this everywhere, honestly, not just in publishing, this kind of retraction of, of the vision. And for um, sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. Just sort of in everything in advertising and just every aspect of of business. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, are there romance writers, modern romance writers, who center women of color now who have inspired you or who you'd like to recommend?
1: Oh, all day. All day. Um, one of my favorite authors um, right now is Regina Black. Mm-hmm. Regina Black wrote The Art of Scandal. She's writing about black women, um, a black woman who has to, who's a trophy wife and is paid an exorbitant amount of money to stay with her husband until the end of an election like boy she meets a man that changes everything um also i i can't say enough about kennedy ryan i feel like i know everyone's probably already read her but like read her again <laughs> she is doing um she's doing such amazing work her characters move us um she's such a compelling writer um that I, I love what she's doing. I also feel like cherish Reed, um, who wrote "Mickey Chambers Shakes It Up. She writes these funny, quirky characters that I love. Taj McCoy writes fat, positive Black women who are getting their happy ending, getting their soft place to land. There are so many.
0: Oh, wow. I, I love asking writers who they recommend because I always get this awesome list of, of <laughs> books to read and put on my list. Finally, just for you, What's, what's next? Are you going to do another Jane Austen novel? Or are you going to do something Ooh. else? Um, this
1: is interesting. I'm currently writing a very steamy murder mystery, Ooh. and I'm really enjoying it. I'm having so much fun. There's nothing that I love more than a little bit of danger and a little bit of heart.
0: Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Well, I'm I'm eager to hear about that book, too. Oh, that's great. Um, So this book is Sex, Lies and Sensibility. The author is Nikki Payne. The book is available now at bookstores near you or wherever you purchase books. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that's it for today's exchange. You can find us online at jefexchange.org or subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Angela Decker, the senior producer of the program. Our assistant producer is Southern Oregon University student Charlie Zimmerman. We get engineering help from SOU student Zach Beagle. Jeffrey Riley hosts the show Most Days and the first segment of today's show. Maxwell and Terry Longshore composed our theme music. Thanks so much for listening today and every day. Have a great day.